0: Welcome to Food for Thought, where we discuss the food, the issues surrounding the world of sports. I'm your host, Evan Makofsky, joined by my co-host, Jeff Slead. Slead has an impeccable resume. He's the former editorial assistant to Bob Costas. He's also the former executive sports producer at Clear Channel Radio. Now he's the co-host of food for thought. He's moving on up, like the Jeffersons. We are mourning the loss of Henry Aaron and Larry King and have Bob Costas coming up in the next segment, and we'll get into those significant passings. But Jeff, let's start in the world of sports where the winter sports, where COVID is running wild. The Washington Capitals are in the midst of playing with Alex Ovechkin and three of their best players who are significant contributors Due to COVID protocols, they're missing four games. The Carolina Hurricanes haven't played since this past Wednesday as five of their players can't participate due to COVID protocols. In the NBA, 17 games this season have been postponed because of COVID. The Wizards have had six players test positive for COVID. They're scheduled to play San Antonio tomorrow after a 13-day layoff since their last game. They took over a week break before they started practicing together this past Wednesday. I'm wondering, Jeff, if it's time for winter sports to seriously consider suspending the seasons.
1: It certainly looks like it's heading in that direction, Evan. The most concerning or upsetting thing as from uh, just a human interest perspective is we know how dangerous this pandemic has been, how it's affected so many people. But when you have athletes who are speaking out against uh, playing because they're afraid of what the situation is going to look like, it can't be good for the competitive balance of the NHL, the NBA. Now we've talked about this in the past where the NBA and the NHL with all the games they have, they have a very forgiving regular season schedule because so many teams make the post. But how can you say that this is something good or normal when you can't even, you just said they haven't played in two weeks. A team hasn't played a game in that long and you don't have enough guys to even put on the court to be competitive. I don't know what the final answer is going to look like, but this is not good.
0: It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out over the next couple weeks and months as the NFL and college football, they've dealt with their own issues during the national championship game. 13 Ohio State players couldn't play because of COVID protocols in the NFL. Kevin Stefanski, the Browns head coach, missed wildcard weekend coaching against the Steelers because he had COVID in week 12. All three Broncos QBs were on the COVID list, and they had to play against the Saints with Kendall Hinton, a practice squad wide receiver playing quarterback, and it was a disaster. Week 16, the Cleveland Browns lost to the New York Jets, and their entire receiving core practically was unable and unavailable due to COVID, including star wide receiver Jarvis Landry. It looks like we're in the clear for the championship games, but with the Super Bowl two weeks away. One has to say it's a possibility, Jeff, that a Patrick Mahomes or an Aaron Rodgers or an even lesser star, but a significant contributor could miss the Super Bowl due to COVID.
1: Yeah, and if that's the case, how can you say that this is a normal regular season or postseason? You mentioned the ridiculousness of the Denver Broncos situation where they didn't have anybody who ever played quarterback in an NFL game. To take, uh, you know, stand behind the center and take snaps. They had to use a practice squad player. I think if Denver was a serious team in the NFL this year, that game would not have been played. Uh, Look, we don't mean to make light of the COVID, and I'm sure everybody by now is tired of hearing about it. But we have to address it. This is what the landscape of sports looks like right now. And what (laughs) it sounds crazy to to even think of the idea, but. What happens if Patrick Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers tests positive and they can't play in the biggest game, the single biggest game in all of sports, the Super Bowl? How can you possibly say that this was a
0: fair season? You can't I don't think you can, Jeff. but I think whatever happens happens at this point, and the NFL is certainly vulnerable. To a player, it may not be Patrick Mahomes or Aaron Rodgers, but somebody being unable to play in the Super Bowl due to COVID. There's no question that they're vulnerable when we've just recapped what the other leagues in in winter sports are going through. And the NFL is not done yet with their season.
1: We've been fortunate to get to where we are right now. But what what it will look like going forward, and then you don't want to look past the Super Bowl, but I'll, I'll take a little sneak peek ahead. We don't know what this is going to look like moving forward uh, for anybody next season. Uh, I I know I'm going backwards a little bit here, but in Major League Baseball, we still don't know, and the players are about to report. We still don't know if there's a designated hitter in the National League. That's a full roster spot that changes the way everything gets played. Uh, We've talked about this situation ad nauseum. Everybody else knows this as well, but this is a moving target. We have no way of knowing what's going to happen. This is the new normal. I, I don't know what the... to
0: to expect. Do you? No one. I I think that that's the answer right there is we're not sure what to expect in these leagues. The NBA and the NHL are going to have to take it day by day. And if too many postponements pile up, maybe they turn into cancellations. Maybe they continue to reschedule. Maybe they have to delay the season. Maybe they just continue to As baseball did last season with the Washington Nationals and the Miami Marlins early on in the year, they issued uh, or they had all sorts of COVID players sidelined, but they found a way to get through the 60 games. The NBA and NHL are playing a little bit bigger seasons, although they're reduced, but it's possible I could see a pause. Moving on to the last topic before we bring on Bob Costas, the New York Mets this past week, fired their general manager, Jared Porter. He had in 2016, when he was the Chicago Cubs director of professional scouting, at the time with a foreign correspondent reporter who was uh, covering Major League Baseball at the time, he had sent her 60 plus unanswered texts and he uh, invited her to meet him in various cities, asking why she was ignoring his texts. And the tech show, she had stopped responding to Porter after he sent a photo of his, his pants featuring a bulge in the groin area. Uh, this story is an ugly one. The New York Mets fired Porter 12 hours later. They found out the night before when ESPN contacted Porter and the Mets fired him the following morning. I think that this is going to do it for Jared Porter. He may get another job as a scouting director, but I don't think that Jared Porter, because this was his first opportunity at being a GM, I don't think he has enough credit in the bank and he will never get another GM job after this.
1: You know, we live in a society where we celebrate in a way the downfall of people jared porter could have done a million wonderful things but this is his legacy what and he chose to do this a 41 year old guy i was reading some of those texts earlier today that's just ridiculous he's a guy in his 30s at the time late 30s some woman who he just met and this is i mean what what are you thinking when you do stuff like this i I, i'm not (laughs) Or
0: maybe he's not thinking to answer that question. He's not
1: thinking with his brain, that's for sure. It's it's just, it's beyond insane, and shame on him. The one who did it, he, uh, I don't know, some sort of rehabilitation maybe, but I I wouldn't, if I were in charge of a major league team, I'd never go near this guy.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be one of those situations, and then the Mets certainly have had either a string of bad luck, which I'm going to go with because now in consecutive seasons and last year their new owner, Steve Cohen, wasn't there, but they had to dismiss Carlos Beltran as team manager due to the Houston Astros cheating scandal. And now this season, they hired Jared Porter in December, fired not even a month later in January. The Mets apparently did not get wind of this story until the night before they fired him and they acted Right away, is there anything the Mets could have done as far as doing their homework? Sandy Alderson said no, and if they had gotten this information about Porter, would have disqualified him from the job. But now, consecutive years, they fire their manager due to different situations, but moral, ethical, integrity-type issues with the Houston Astros cheating scandal. And now the sexting, if you want to call it, with Jared Porter— I'm going to give the Mets a a break here and say that they just had an unfortunate run of bad luck.
1: They have had an unfortunate run of bad luck, and they've also had a change in ownership, which uh, we need to acknowledge. And Sandy Olison has returned as uh, the man who's going to run things over there. Steve Cohen, the new owner, owner, was not there for everything that happened last year. So I think that's probably only fair to give these guys a free pass just for what happened this year. But are the Mets a jinxed franchise with these frontline hires that don't even make it to the regular season. I
0: don't know. It's something we will discuss coming up in the next segment. Bob Costas joins us. He'll weigh in on the passings of Larry King, Henry Aaron, COVID, and so much more. That's next on Food for Thought. I'm Evan Makofsky along with Jeff Slead. Welcome back to Food for Thought. I'm Evan Makofsky with my co-host Jeff Slead. It's our pleasure to have 28-time Emmy Award winner and 2018 Ford C. Frick Award winner and inductee into the Baseball Hall of Fame, Bob Costas. Bob, we'll get to baseball in a second, but let's start with the recent most present and unfortunate news with Larry King passing away earlier today. I know you used to sub in and host his legendary interview show. Let me ask you this question in a way that honors Larry. Let's go to Bob in Orange County for his favorite Larry King memory. Bob, are you with us? Yeah,
2: but if Bob started by saying... Larry, thank you for taking my call. I'm a long-time listener. I love your program. I especially enjoyed your conversation with the great comedian Albert Brooks. Before you could get that far, Larry, what's your question? It doesn't make any difference if you said, Larry, I think you're not only the greatest broadcaster, you're the greatest human who has ever trod the planet Earth. What's your question? (laughs) Boom, boom, boom. Larry, Larry perhaps correctly felt that the attention of the audience, uh, the audience, the attention span of the audience was quite limited, and he wanted to keep things moving.
0: So, what is Bob Costas's personal favorite Larry King memory?
2: Well, I knew Larry pretty well, both on the air and off, uh, and I used to see him um, in D.C. sometimes for dinner. Uh, he he had his favorite haunts that he liked uh, around town. And then when he moved out to LA and took his CNN show out there with him, um, something you could count on with Larry, he was a creature of habit. Almost every day, he had breakfast at a place called Nate and Al's in Beverly Hills. So if I happened to be in LA for an assignment or something, I often would stay at a hotel that was within walking distance of Nate and Al's. I didn't have to contact Larry and say, hey Larry, I'm in town. What are you doing? I would just stroll in to Nate Now's at about 9 a.m. any weekday morning. And the chance was about 95% that Larry would be sitting there already with his two transplanted from Brooklyn buddies from his boyhood, Sid and Asher. Um, and then there might be another person there. So I'd walk up, hey Larry, how you doing? Actually, we didn't use first names. I'd go, King. He'd go. Costas, and then I would sit down at the booth, and Sid and Asher were always there. But sometimes it would be Bob. You know, Shecky Green. He's big in Vegas. Bob, you know Tom Snyder. Of course, I know Tom Snyder. Hey, hey Tom. You know, but yeah, 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 yeah. What do you, what do you, what do you want? The bagels here are good. Get it with a spear. <laughs>
1: I remember my first assignment, uh, interning at NBC. Bob was to proofread Larry King's copy. He was on with you the very first year you hosted uh, the NBC pregame football show and NFL '84. Uh, that was uh, my my two cents. Uh, but uh, Evan had mentioned at the top the unfortunate passings of uh, not only Larry King but of course Henry Aaron. Which uh, boy, I don't know where to be, begin with that, Bob.
2: Well. It's rare that this is true. It's a cliche that's trotted out too often. But sometimes cliches apply. Sometimes they're true. Here was a person, no matter how great his accomplishments were, he was every bit as great as a person as he was as a player. Uh, He was a person of grace, of dignity, of quiet principle. And long after he quit playing, which was followed the 1976 season, he was still doing everything he could right up until the last days of his life for philanthropy, for causes that mattered to him. He was a genuinely humble man and he was willing to be recognized if there was some association with a cause. He didn't want to be celebrated or honored just for the sake of, hey, I'm Hank Aaron. But if it was in connection to a charity or a cause that he believed in or honoring another person for whom he had respect, he was unfailingly willing to do that.
0: Bob, as the 20th anniversary of his home run feat approached uh, in the early 90s, and I'm pulling from the New York Times obituary of Henry Aaron, they posted yesterday, again, 20 years later from 1974, he told sports columnist William C. Roden of the New York Times, and I'm quoting... That April 1974 really led up to turning me off on baseball. It really me made me see for the first time a clear picture of what this country is about. My kids had to live like they were in prison because of kidnap threats. And I had to live like a pig in a slaughter camp. I had to duck. I had to go out the back door of ballparks. I had to have police escort with me all the time. I was getting threatening letters every single day. All of these things have put a bad taste in my mouth and it won't go away. They carved a piece of my heart away. Granted, that was towards the end of his career. But the fact that he says it took a piece of his heart away and sort of turned him off to baseball. How can you quantify that, what this man went through?
2: Well, I think anyone who's paid attention has a sense now of what he went through and the ugly aspect of America that it revealed. And we might have thought that we as a nation had grown past that almost entirely, that those sorts of sentiments and, and ugly attitudes had been consigned to the deepest, darkest, and smallest corners. But we find out, even with recent events, that while the country has come a very, very long way, in tangible ways and intangible ways in terms of our attitudes toward race and getting to a better place, there's no denying the progress that we have made but there's also no denying that that ugly element has never been completely extinguished. And if we're not careful, it will rear its ugly head again, and it has reared its ugly head again. But I will say, with regard to Hank, that over time, and this wasn't just a matter of age, over time, he mellowed on that stance. He didn't mellow in terms of backing away from the truth, the ugly truth he had to confront, But he also saw and recognized and appreciated that even then, a huge portion of white America, not just black America, a huge portion of white America was on his side. Not only did they admire and respect him and root for him, but they recognized how awful it was that he had to face that kind of racism and they rejected it even then. And then subsequently, not only was he honored, he became The most respected ballplayer, I would say, in terms of his, not just his accomplishments, which were monumental, but the kind of person he was. He was so universally respected and admired that he couldn't help but understand that he had triumphed, not just as a person, but what he represented had won over the vast majority of the American public.
0: Bob Costas with Evan Makovsky and Jeff Sleed on Food for Thought. The votes are already in. Uh, we're going to hear in a couple days. Do you think Barry Bonds, who according to the record book, the all-time home run leader, but we all know better, and Roger Clemens will get into the Hall of Fame this year or not? And do you think they should get in?
2: Well, they ordered 60%. You need 75%. They have two years left. This is just a guess. Uh, People want my opinion, but the truth is that broadcasters don't have a vote. It's only baseball writers who have a vote. I can't read the minds of all of the hundreds of members of the electorate, but I think this could be a factor. There was no ceremony last year. So they carry over the awards and the inductions for Derek Jeter, for Ted Simmons, for Larry Walker, and for Marvin Miller. And some people may say, look, if we've got to have a rogues gallery induction ceremony, let that happen the following year. Not just Bonds and Clemens, but actually it's Kurt Schilling who's closest because he's at 70%. And they all have one year remaining after this. I think it might be a factor in the minds of some to say, look, I'm going to withhold a vote for Bonds, for Clemens, for Schilling because we can't have somebody who's universally admired like Derek Jeter. We can't have that ceremony marred or compromised by people we have ambivalent feelings about or even hostile feelings toward. And when it comes to Kurt Schilling, whose Hall of Fame credentials in my mind are undeniable, I would have voted for him from the very first year of eligibility just based on his on-field accomplishments. Uh, When it comes to Schilling, you can't be sure what he might say in an induction speech. So no one wants that kind of scene. So my guess is that none of them get in this time. And then it'll be really interesting to see what happens in their final year of eligibility. There are other people on the ballot like Andrew Jones and Omar Vizquel and Todd Helton and a few others who are worthy of consideration, but they have a few more years left. The people who come on the ballot next year that are bold names would be A-Rod, and david ortiz if a rod ever gets in it's not going to be on the first ballot because people will hold it against him uh, at least for a while uh the multiple violations and the suspension and all that sort of stuff in the case of david ortiz who is a beloved player and clearly has hall of fame credentials his name was uh found in that survey testing uh there is an admission or an acknowledgement that that testing was flawed so you could plausibly say well Maybe I'm among the handful of people that were. It was a false positive, and that's the only time that his uh, name was ever connected to PEDs. I think David Ortiz will make it to the Hall of Fame eventually, but my point here, as it regards Clemens, Bonds, um, and Schilling is that the ballot is pretty clear in their final year, and we have no way of knowing how many voters may have said all along about Bonds and Clemens. I know they have Hall of Fame credentials. If you look at it as if they'd retired in the late 90s before the PED suspicions ever began, um, they would have been first ballot Hall of Famers. Maybe some voters have been saying, yeah, I recognize that, but I'll let them twist in the wind until the final year of eligibility. So I think that 10th year for Schilling, Clemens and Bonds is gonna be very interesting because the path then is clear for them. It's now or never, and there's nobody else that, urgently has to be voted for before them. So it'll almost be a a direct referendum on those three guys.
0: But does Bob Costas believe that they belong in the Hall of Fame, at least Clemens and Bonds? Schilling's kind of a different story, as you mentioned, with nobody knows Mm -hmm. what he's going to say. But from a performance-enhancing drug standpoint, do you think they belong?
2: Well, this is what I've always said, and it's kind of a tortured rationale. Um, I don't feel completely comfortable with it, but I do make this distinction. If a player was a true all-time great on the short list of the best ever at his position in the discussion, not just of the best players of his generation, but the best players of all time, then I can say this person would have been a Hall of Famer without performance-enhancing drugs. And in the case of Bonds especially and Clemens pretty much, they had that resume built before anyone alleges they began Using performance-enhancing drugs, I can't be sure about that. When it comes, let's say, to someone like Rafael Palmeiro, and despite the home run totals and three sixty-plus home run seasons, you could make a case that Sammy Sosa wasn't even an All-Star player before he started juicing, let alone a Hall of Fame level player. Uh, And in the case of someone like Manny Ramirez, you got a different situation, and maybe this applies to A-Rod too, in that their violations come after the testing and the penalties for it had been codified uh, and in the case of ramirez who was one of the great right-handed hitters of all time he was also an indifferent fielder a terrible base runner and openly quit on two different teams during the course of his career you combine that with multiple drug suspensions and suspicions beyond even those suspensions and it's easy for me uh, to make a case that we don't have to consider manny ramirez for the hall of fame i think bonds and clemens are in a separate category and it'll be interesting to see how the voters regard A-Rod because we have no way of knowing for sure when A-Rod's use of PEDs began. Uh, it's a reasonable assumption that on his natural merits, he would have been a Hall of Fame player. He was seems to be one of the greatest players of all time, but that's a really complicated one because much of what uh, we know about his PED history post-dates baseball having codified it uh, there are rules in place. Everyone knows what the rules are. Now, having said that, Evan, I'll also say this. When we talk about, well, there were no rules against it. You hear some people rationalize it. There were no rules against it when Bonds did this or Mark McGuire did that. Everyone knew it was wrong. If, there were, if they didn't think it was wrong, then why wouldn't players in 1992 or 1995 have said, yeah, I use HGH. I use decadarabalin or Winstral. There's no baseball rules against it. It's no different than using a protein powder. Well, first of all, it was against federal law, but also even if it wasn't against federal law somehow, if it wasn't cheating, and if it wasn't regarded as cheating, why would people have done it so furtively? Why would they deny it and offer tortured rationales and and excuses? Everybody knew it was wrong. Um, So, well, it's an interesting distinction about when testing and penalties began no matter when anyone did it they knew it was wrong to do it otherwise they would have done it openly
0: Evan Makovsky and Jeff Slead on food for thought joined by Bob Costas there's all sorts of cancellations in the NHL with the Washington Capitals the Carolina Hurricanes haven't played since Wednesday the NBA has had 17 postponements already this season um What is your opinion of the way the leagues are navigating through these situations? And let's not forget, of course, um, the NFL and what they went through this past season.
2: Well, with regard to the NBA and NHL, once you're out of a bubble, then it's a different world. So this was to be expected. Uh, The players are out there in the world. They're not in a bubble. And while some have openly broken protocols, stupidly and selfishly, we also know that with the nature of the pandemic, even if a player has followed all the rules and been very careful, that only gives them a better chance to to avoid infection. If you're out there in the world, you're going to run that risk. So outside the bubble, uh, it was predictable that this would have occurred. I don't know that the leagues or any of their approaches to this are to blame. I just think it's a consequence of trying to get games in under these circumstances. They hoped You know, during the summertime when the NBA and NHL were trying to finish up, get to the playoffs and finish it up in a bubble. And when baseball was trying to figure out how they could uh, get through a 60 game season and look for a while like they wouldn't, they hit a bunch of speed bumps, but they never drove into a ditch. It was generally felt that by the time 2021 rolls around, things will be better um and that they'll be able to play something closer to a full season and under something closer to normal conditions. Well, we do have the vaccine on the horizon, so there is light at the end of the tunnel, but for the moment as we speak, it's worse than it's ever has been has been in terms of daily infections and daily deaths. So none of the leagues anticipated that um and now that's the world they live in.
0: And what about Bob with um the NFL, the Super Bowl. It looks like we're in the clear for the championship games, but we had a week where the Broncos had all three of their quarterbacks on the COVID list and they had to start a practice squad wide receiver. Week 16, the Browns lost to the Jets and their whole receiving core, including Jarvis Landry, was on the COVID list. Certainly the Super Bowls in two weeks. Isn't it possible? Isn't the NFL vulnerable? We saw Kevin Stefanski, the Browns head coach, miss the wild card game against um, the Pittsburgh Steelers because he had COVID. Isn't it possible? I'm not saying Patrick Mahomes. I'm not saying Aaron Rodgers, if they are to, in fact, advance to the Super Bowl, but that we have a significant player on the COVID list for the Super Bowl. Sure, it's possible. And the league knows that. Yeah.
2: And what you cited, Uh, The circumstances you cited that arose during the season and the early rounds of the playoffs, those were inevitable. We just didn't know exactly which teams, exactly which players, but a certain amount of this was inevitable. And is there some peril between the conference championship games and the two weeks between that and and the Super Bowl? Yeah. And I think there's some thought that they will try to get uh, the players to Tampa even earlier than they ordinarily would and isolate them as much as possible. Um, so that the chance that either roster would be uh, significantly affected by COVID uh, is reduced. But that's just your best guess or your best approach. Nothing's guaranteed under these circumstances.
1: Uh, You've been keeping a low profile, I guess, yourself out there on the West Coast. Uh, Is that your new normal, staying in your your house all day? I mean, how, how is this affecting you personally?
2: Well, I've been able to be on the air many, many times for both MLBN and for CNN uh, and to do various things like this. So I'm not so sure that my profile has been all that low, but um, luckily for me, I'm able to work and do my job in a substantial way without having to leave home. So until uh, my wife and I have been vaccinated, which I hope will happen soon, yeah, we're here. Uh, this has worked out well for under you. Under house arrest. It's worked out. I don't I don't know that it's worked out perfectly for anybody, but compared to other people, um, all we've had to do is adjust, whereas others have had to, in one sense or another, try to figure out how to survive, either survive literally from a medical standpoint or survive financially and professionally. Um, just our circumstances happen to be more fortunate, but like anyone else, we're looking forward to the time when things return to something closer to normal.
0: Have, have you uh, gotten to know any neighbors taking walks during the pandemic?
2: Yeah, we know the next door neighbors <laughs> and we recognize a few faces from a distance. But if we're taking walks, which we do all the time around the neighborhood and you see someone coming on the same path, hmm. one party or the other veers yeah. you know, left or right. Nobody continues on a collision course. It just doesn't work that way. Everybody has an unspoken understanding. You nod, you nod, go to the other side of the street and from a safe distance you wave that's pretty much what it is
0: realizing bob that pro sports is a business and with the understanding that pro sports will go back to a full slate of games when they can sell tickets concessions merchandise Many, including myself, think there are too many regular season games, especially in the NBA and the NHL, with a large percentage of the league making the playoffs. This year in the pandemic-shortened season, we have 72 NBA games instead of 82. We have 56 NHL games instead of 82. Personally, I think 50-something games is enough to determine what 16 teams in each league make the playoffs. Any silver lining to the shortening of season without making light of the virus or anyone who's gotten sick or the reasons that they've had to do this? Yeah, I think uh, for a long time, pre-COVID,
2: a lot of people have said that 72 games makes more sense or something in that vicinity, something in the 60s, perhaps, makes more sense uh, for the NBA. Uh, And a shorter season might make more sense for the NHL. From a competitive standpoint, from what fans and the media generally would want but there's one big obstacle to that, and that's the revenue. You know, most of the arenas are sold out or close to sold out. And it isn't just network television. Network television will always have its games. But all these teams have regional television arrangements from which they derive a lot of revenue. And so by how whatever percentage of 80-plus games you reduce it by, that's the percentage that the revenue is reduced by. Um, If the players were willing to say, "Okay, we will take a cut in our overall compensation commensurate with the reduction in television revenue, then maybe the owners could say, well, our bottom line won't be affected as much or if they could share that hit.
0: But that's not going to happen. So I think it's a moot point. Bob, when do you expect sporting events to resemble close to normal pre-pandemic conditions? I think it's foolish to guess.
2: When a substantial portion of the country has been vaccinated, when credible health authorities tell us uh, that we're closer to something like herd immunity, uh, then cautiously they can resume with more fans in the stands with people feeling more comfortable with the whole thing, with not missing games with fewer, if any, players testing positive. Uh, But I have no way of knowing even experts more steeped in the information Uh, than I could possibly be. All they're doing is offering best guesses. No one knows.
0: One thing, minus the fans, no doubt an element missing in the overall way. The players feed off that energy and the interchange and, you know, in between timeouts and whatnot. That said, all these guys played in high school in front of small crowds. Overall, I don't think players' performances have fallen off at all with no fans at the games across MLB, NBA, NHL, and NFL. Do you agree?
2: Yeah, I've been pleasantly surprised with the quality of play and what appears to be the energy and the commitment. It's still a missing element from an entertainment standpoint. And I've heard several players say that they feel as if something is missing, that there's some energy and adrenaline uh, that the crowd provides, even when you're on the road, uh, the energy of being booed or silencing a cheering crowd uh, when the road team does something good. Uh, that's that's an element that's that's missing, and it's an essential element. Everyone understands that it's the best they can do under these circumstances, but uh, a return to normal in all respects is what we're hoping for.
1: You used to do play-by-play for NBC in uh, the 90s and 2000s. Uh, we got to see Michael Jordan win a bunch of titles, and now we have, I guess with the uh, the Nets, a, a super team, for lack of a better term. Your thoughts about that as a, compared to where basketball was when you were calling the games.
2: Well, the Nets haven't done anything yet, except they've assembled a team that has three uh, potential Hall of Fame players. Uh, If Kyrie Irving could find his way to Springfield, (laughs) Massachusetts, if they ever induct him to the Hall of Fame, I think it would depend upon the position of the sun, uh, since he considers the earth to be flat among as many unusual takes on the world, as most of us know it. Um, So they haven't accomplished anything. Yeah, there have been so-called called teams before Uh, the Bulls, on the other hand, won six championships in a golden era, Uh, could have conceivably. I'm not saying certainly, but had Michael Jordan not gone to play baseball, might have won eight in a row, although it would have been really interesting to see how the Bulls would have fared against Akeem Olajuwon's Rockets, especially in the second year of a Rockets championship uh, when they had added. Clyde Drexler, because Jordan himself said that Elijah Wan was a guy that gave him and the Bulls as a team uh, a lot of trouble. But, you know, that's all speculation. The Bulls did what they did, and they did it during a golden era in the league from an entertainment standpoint, from a quality of play standpoint, um, from its primacy in the cultural conversation. All those games were on CBS in the 80s with Bird and Magic, uh, Dr. J and Moses Malone and others, and then it carries over uh, into the 90s on NBC. These games are on network television, and the promos for those games are on are on Seinfeld and ER and Cosby and David Letterman and Johnny Carson and The Today Show and Broca's newscast. It's different now. I'm not disparaging the broadcast. The broadcasts are excellent on cable TV, but it's just different LeBron James is not front and center in the cultural conversation to anything near the extent that Michael Jordan was. You throw the dream team into that, the first true dream team in 92, and the beginning of sports marketing, for better or worse, it did amp things up. Uh, It's just impossible to replicate what the NBA was with Michael Jordan and the Bulls at the center of it, but you think of all the other recognizable names and teams that were recognizable and held together for a long period of time. Just a different world uh, then, and I don't think we'll ever see it again.
0: Yeah, but what about the super teams? that so You mentioned LeBron James. He started a decade ago when he went to the Heatles and formed up with Chris Bosh and uh, Dwayne yeah. Wade. We've seen it in Golden State with Kevin Durant. Going there, obviously now Harden to the Nets. You mentioned if Kyrie Irving can get his head straight, he could be a Hall of Famer, and he's playing with Kevin Durant in uh, Brooklyn. What's your take on these super teams forming?
2: It's interesting, but it's not really the best thing for the league. You can't blame LeBron James for doing what he has done. Uh, I don't blame him at all. And he's clearly one of the very best players of all time. But some sort of team continuity in any sport is a necessary part of fan attachment, Uh, not just for the avid fan, but even for the casual fan who tunes in now and then he likes to recognize what he's seeing. Uh, I will say about the Golden State Warriors uh, and Durant came and went and, and whatnot, but the Golden State Warriors had a magnificent run that yielded three championships. And when they had the Cavs down three games to one and they had won 72 games during that regular season or was it more than 72 something like I that i believe right? it was more they 74, broke 74 the, yeah somewhere in that they, 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 the, 73 and 9 so they eclipsed yeah. what uh the bulls had done in 1996 i guess uh that team was not only a genuinely great team but they were such a pleasing team to watch play um and they deserve uh to be mentioned on the short list of the greatest nba teams they deserve to be in that conversation. But again, just the way this whole thing lands um, in the cultural conversation, it was just different during their era than it was in the 80s and 90s.
0: Bob Costas with Evan Makovsky and Jeff Sleet on Food for Thought. Uh, we had a change in administrations this week. Donald Trump vocally and on Twitter opposed Colin Kaepernick and anyone who knelt during the national anthem. I felt that showed a lack of empathy from the White House routinely during Trump's tenure. You'd see entire championship teams or certain players skip the White House visit championship celebration. Not trying to get political here, but with the change in administrations, do you think the sports world has a chance to have a more healing and receptive disposition with a new president and administration in place that can hopefully show some more empathy for what these athletes and their communities are going through? I would hope so. Uh,
2: In that respect, (laughs) if there isn't a very clear difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden or Trump-Harris and, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Biden-Harris and and Trump-Pence, if that difference isn't clear and what's likely to flow from it, and I think people have not been paying close attention.
1: Trump was a polarizing figure, no doubt. And Joe Biden, I think he was just uh, kind of Biden's time waiting for this opportunity. So uh, I think we'll see a, a major shift in the landscape.
0: And Bob, don't you, what about the, what went on this summer in the bubble in the NBA with all the political messages and the, um, you know, in the NFL players had it on their, Their sneakers, messages, whether it's recognizing Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. um, Do you think that that will continue? Will it lessen? Is it a turnoff to a part of the audience? How do you think that that's going to go?
2: I've said this before. I think in the extraordinary circumstances of 2020, uh, regardless of whether it alienated or offended some portion of those leagues fan bases i think it was completely understandable it happened organically but i think even adam silver head of the most progressive league historically uh in north american sports the nba even he has acknowledged he acknowledged it to me on cnn that they can't have quite the same approach going forward because even those who are in sympathy with these various causes may reach a point, if they haven't already, where they say, look, I get all this, I agree, I'll watch documentaries about it, talk shows about it, conversations and interviews about it, but I don't need to be confronted by it every moment while I'm watching the game with, with slogans, if that's the right word, or uh, expressions regarding social justice on everyone's uniform or on the court or in the end zone. Um, I think that that might eventually be counterproductive, not just by offending Trump sympathizers or that kind of that portion of society among a sports fan base. But even those who are in substantial agreement might say, look, we get this uh, and we we see it all around us in the news and everything else. But when we turn turn on a game, we're looking for two or three hours of entertainment. That doesn't mean that we're callous toward the causes. That doesn't mean we're unmindful of it. But now some adjustment in the approach is probably the best way to go before they reach a point of diminishing returns. And I've said this before too every league now has its own television network 24 7, 365. I think it would be extremely helpful if those outlets had regular programming that was devoted to allowing the players a place to express their concerns. And that's across the spectrum. If somebody has a conservative viewpoint or wants to mount a counter argument, if you had enough time and space and a thoughtful moderators who could conduct conversations, then you could get beyond sloganeering, beyond symbolism, which has its place, but we got to get beyond that into a more nuanced conversation. And you're not going to have a nuanced conversation during a game itself.
0: Bob Costas, we appreciate your time. Evan Makovsky and Jeff Sleed on Food for Thought. Be safe, be well, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, gentlemen. Take care. Thanks, Bob. Well, Sleed, that was insightful and informative and fun and educational talking to Bob Costas on a myriad of of topics, including him remembering both Larry King and Hank Aaron. It's not that easy to get 28 Emmy Awards. That, is, uh, that speaks for
1: itself. The term GOAT, greatest of all time, was not around before Bob started, but I
0: think it's pretty universal that he is recognized as the GOAT of sportscasters. Well, for Jeff Slead, I'm Evan Makofsky. That's Food for Thought, and we'll see you on the next episode.